every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I am the County Clerk in Boone County, Missouri, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And we're really excited to have Taylor Lansdale here. He is the Program Manager for the Council and State Governments and all things UOCAVA. So we're going to be talking about overseas voting and military voting, and we really appreciate having him here today. Thanks for the opportunity. How did you get started in elections in the first place? By trade, I'm an attorney at a law school, was a public defender for about five years in eastern Kentucky, which was uh, the best job that I'd ever want to have ever again. And then I actually had a friend recommend that I look at this posting for the Council of State Governments. And so I, I came on actually doing an occupational licensure work and looking at, you know, how states can make it easier for, you know, say, a military spouse changing posts with his or her partner, right? And they've got a, a professional license. How quickly can they make that transition and get back to work? And I was kind of vaguely aware of this program we had called the Overseas Voting Initiative, which was in a, kind of a state of transition. And I'm a quasi-veteran, I guess is what I call myself. And I was like, hey, that that's really cool work. I'm happy to help. Um, and then within a couple of weeks, I was the program manager. So no elections experience, just some anecdotes about maybe the challenges that military voters face. And here we are three years later, still managing to keep my job. I feel like the military space is one of the ones that's been ever evolving in the last few years of how to get ballots to people and how to communicate with them and what states have been doing. And everybody does it so differently. So how has that changed your perspective on things? So just learning about like how challenging it is to run elections, period, from dealing with election officials and then recognizing the extra set of challenges that military and overseas voters add into that mix, right? I think was my immediate big takeaway through stuff that that I knew implicitly, but had never applied to voting, right? So one of my favorite examples is we went and toured the USS America in San Diego and talked to some of those, those sailors there. You know, I knew that they only got mail every couple of weeks via helicopter, but had never thought through what that meant in terms of, of voting, right? Specifically, if, if you're talking about like a male only state, if that military voter for something happens, tempo, operational tempo such that like they miss that mail drop or that, or, or sending mail in or out, then they effectively condense their ability to vote, right? So figuring out those challenges and helping election officials, I, I guess, figure out ways to overcome them has been, it was kind of the, the immediate thing that I fell into. I know that you recently presented at NAS. And I assume that a lot of that was informed by your experience, especially through the 2020 election and things like that. So I was wondering if you could kind of give an overview of what you let secretaries of state know and why you thought it was important. It's actually a little different than the OVI work with the Council of State Governments is a partnership with the Federal Voting Assistance Program. So, so the Department of Defense program charged with military and overseas voters. But this is something that you know, I was very fortunate that Lindsay at NAS reached out and said, hey, you guys are have some experience in working with voters who are away from home. Let's take a look at what states are doing for emergency responders when they're 
either deployed to a different jurisdiction in state or out of state. And I think a lot of that was driven actually by Secretary Watson of Mississippi. He was very passionate about that. So, so we did some, we did a lot of research and we found essentially 11 states had specific pieces of legislation regarding that. And there were about four approaches that states have taken to make sure that emergency responders can vote when they're deployed, right? So the first is you can just extend UACAVA provisions to them. That makes a lot of sense to me, right? Because that's the world that I live in. Your procedures are already built. Another a way to approach it is to uh, just extend or excuse voters from the absentee request deadline, which makes sense, right? And, and to be clear, the solution that we're trying to solve for, right, like firefighter four days before an election or line worker, whatever, gets called out. They've missed their deadline to request absentee. They're not going to vote in person. Like, how do we make sure that person can vote, right? That's what we're solving. So first way, extend you a COVID provision. Second way, extend uh, absentee ballot. A secretary of state or chief election official do secretary of state and chief election official things and just come up with a procedure, which I think is, is a way. And then the last is what I call the Colorado approach, uh, which is having an emergency voting generally provision. So giving election officials the authority in rare cases to just make it work for people who are in tough situations and vote. There's more to it. Once you get down into the weeds, like who's the declaring authority in terms of the statutory language, do you want that to be your governor? That seems to take care of the in-state stuff, but you also probably need to consider another governor if you're talking, if you want to make sure those people are taken care of if they're in another state. There's also the president aspect. Should you specifically name the president or should you leave it vague and so that way you can make stuff fit as necessary? And then just the definition of emergency responder was interesting. As we started looking at this, like I, I went straight to firefighter and I didn't think about how do you define it in such a way that like you include people, but you also don't exclude people. And then, it, and then you get to return method, which obviously can be a little controversial. Um, I think the example we got down there from Mississippi was, was electronic return and specifically mobile voting. I don't think that's the only way that's a way. Uh, I think it's important and, and, and something that I think it's easy to think, Oh, that's such a rare situation. Right. It, I can say it doesn't, it's not, I mean, you think about COVID, you think about hurricanes, that have been uptick that we've seen tick in. You think about the wildfires. I mean, just like earlier this month, there were 21,000 wildland firefighters fighting fires. And then last year, California's firefighters, there were people from 10 states just fighting those fires. And I'm only talking about one type of emergency responder. So it, it's a big enough segment of people. And certainly the work that they're doing justifies taking a, a deeper look at the policy that we have in terms of allowing them to vote. It seems to me this issue would perhaps be right for some kind of federal intervention. This whole issue about first responders being deployed uh, to emergencies and, and having to vote seems ripe to be addressed at the federal level. Do you know of any efforts um, in Congress or at the federal level to address this, this issue? I'm not tracking any, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert in, in what's going on up, up, up in D.C. I will say that thought was actually shared when we Concluded the conference, Secretary Wyman from Washington, who happens to be the co-chair of the Overseas Voting Initiative, uh, actually proposed that. Of the, I think we had Secretary Felice Oliver and Secretary Watson on stage, and they both agreed that that was a way forward. Uh, I think that's a way. I think there's other ways to do it. I mean, I, I think I'm still a fan of model legislation, the ULC, or the, the work that ULC does. They'd be an interesting party to get involved here. And even something like an interstate compact, I know that, that you know, interstate compacts take a, a lot of R&D. We actually have the National Center for Interstate Compacts here at CHG. So I'm well aware of what it takes to set those up uh, for what is, a, I guess, probably a, a pretty granular issue. I say that only say I think there's a couple ways the states can approach it. I thought it was interesting. You mentioned the provisions they have in Colorado because 
it's almost impossible to foresee all of the kinds of emergencies and all of the people who might be deployed to address emergencies. Maybe it makes most sense to give a lot of flexibility to election administrators to make voting work for people in these situations. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about maybe what Colorado does and just in general, mechanically, how a very open-ended response might work administratively. It's actually an interesting story. So it's always dangerous as a, as a nonprofit or as a, you know, a policy forward group to go present state policies and law to the states because inevitably you're going to have to mess something up. And that this is one of those examples of that. So I got up there and briefed, you know, basically three different approaches. And Judd from Colorado pulled me aside. I was like, hey, I, I think we've got this covered too. And so I went back and did the research. And yeah, so this is where I came up with that fourth approach, which is the, the catch-all, right? So they didn't have to veer into creating specific language for emergency responders because they have a law that just allows for emergency voting. That was kind of my question too. Have you found, this is obviously something that, affects more than one organization. I mean, you can see there's lots of times that the similarities come up where a Yulikava transmission method may also be very helpful for people that have a disability that might need a different way of casting their ballot. Do you find that to be the case? Is that something that there have been relationships built because of a shared common interest in making this work for people that end up in different situations, but they come at it from a different angle? There's definitely a lot of intersectionality in terms of groups trying to, to overcome different challenges faced by different subjects of the voting population. You know, and that's something that our members have shown interest in within OVI or the OVC's voting initiative is, is there a way that we can talk about solutions in a way that serves both the military and overseas voters and the disabled communities specifically? I think, I, at least for us, you know, we're different because we're funded by FF, and so I, I want to make sure that I'm moving out specifically on the mission of military and overseas voters. And I also think it's a challenge too because I'm barely an expert on what what we do for you, Akava voters. So I certainly do not want to be uh, out there espousing that I have any idea of what a good solution is for the disabled community or a community like that. So I definitely think there's a way forward of us combining forces on particular issues. But there's not anything happening right that like that right now. Hopefully in the future there will be. I'm curious if after 2020 and moving into 2020, how the specter of the Universal Postal Union and then into the pandemic, the postal systems weren't working in a lot of places across right. the world. Has there been more movement toward electronic transmission of ballots? And have you seen any new ways of transmitting ballots electronically? So it's a really good question, and I just kind of want to hang a lantern on how important that was to us, right? The, the UPU, and I'm reminded constantly that military voters have been voting by mail since like the Civil War. But, you know, it's interesting that I, I took over at the OVI, and then we talked about withdrawing from the UPU. And then, as you mentioned, with COVID, at one point, 122 countries weren't accepting or delivering mail back to the U.S., right? And, you know, because of COVID, I want to be clear, there's nothing nefarious happening. But for those states, and I think it was like 20 states that only allowed return by mail, like those voters were in deep trouble, right? Now, a lot of that stuff alleviated, but I think it, it's, it's raised this question of, should we have contingencies in place? Like, should we have contingency plans in place? We actually issued two different things. We issued the fail-safe task force, which was a set of recommendations 
that my working group on the OVI, which is 30 election officials, put out that was like, you know, because of the gravity of the situation with, you know, first the UPU and now COVID, like in order to make sure that military and overseas voters can work, vote, we may have to stretch ourselves and look at different solutions. And then we actually just put out a position paper on electronic return just a, a month or so ago, you know, ultimately saying, and, and, and to be clear, this is my members saying this, you know, nobody cares what Taylor Lansdale has to say. I just put out what my members say. We understand that there are significant security risks with electronic return, but with military and overseas voters, they face very specific challenges that are on the extreme end of the spectrum. And it seems to us that for a lot of those voters, electronic return serves them in a way that other methods don't. Now, to be clear, like, I don't, I don't care what policymakers ultimately decide upon. That's not my job. My job is to assist, you know, as long as the calculus is examining every solution, then, you know, the, the answer to the, to the calculus, I'm not interested in. And that was, that was the gist of, of the position paper. So in terms of, is it changing? I can tell you that the interest and the amount I get asked about it in the capacity of OVI is way up because of the mail just not being as rock solid and reliable, despite all of the great work that the USPS and the Military Postal Service Agency and the Department of State does. It's just, it's vulnerable to like any other return method. I think probably similar to the way that you said, well, I hadn't really thought about it until you started working there. And it seems like it would be a small number of people, but I know when we send out our 600 plus ballots to military and overseas voters, what are some other challenges that might be specific? You know, we might take for granted, oh, well, we're sending them the ballot. I don't understand why they can't just print it out and then send it back to us and <laughs> you know, they're all supposed to have a voting expert on base when they do these things. And, right. you know, and that doesn't even take into account just people that happen to be overseas that are not part of the military. So any kind of anecdotal stuff that you can share. You know, I, I think what's tough about it, too, is that you've got challenges with overseas voters and you've got challenges for military voters and you're trying to solve for both when the problems aren't necessarily the same. You know, I, I think one thing that you said that just drew my attention straight to it is like, so they can't just print out the ballot, right? Well, well, that, that, that is something that we talk about quite a lot, right? Because it depends on, you know, if you've got a military voter who's stationed, say, at like a, a major base in England or something like that, then yeah, they're probably going to have access to a printer. Um, they're probably going to be able to scan something back in and send it should they need to. Um, but that's certainly not the case uh, for someone who's in a forward deployed situation on a, on a forward operating base or something like that. I would submit to you that they're not going to find a scanner, very unlikely to find a printer. <laughs> and for the, you know, and something we talk about an inordinate amount is, you know, some states allow facts. I, I don't know that I've seen a fax since I was practicing family law, like as a clerk, right? So I definitely don't think they have access to that. So, you know, that's, we talk about actually using common acts we, so with states, who come to it, like if, so if in order to get registered, it requires something where somebody has to physically print, sign, scan, send back. We recommend taking a look at common access cards with state policymakers, which is essentially every military voter has a, an ID in their wallet that has a, a chip in it. And that's how like we sign everything, or I used to sign everything. That's how you get into like the gym on post or whatever. But what that also allows you to do is to, to digitally sign a document. And so allowing military voters, and this, and again, this doesn't help, I guess I was talking about earlier, this doesn't really help overseas voters or civilian overseas voters, but for military voters, it's just, you know, if, if you allow that digital signature as opposed to the, the wet signature, 
that takes away some of the challenges they face with technology. You know, we talked about earlier with military voters, it's just the infrequency of mail. Sometimes again, I think MPSA does an outstanding job, but you know, if somebody's out on a ship at sea, like they, it just make things, makes things challenging. And I, and I also think military voters can be a little challenging to communicate with because they, you know, they don't have a whole lot of personal time anyways. A lot of them, if they're emailing during the day at all, they're probably on a dot mill. And there's some issues with like attachments getting stripped when you send something through to the dot mill. So that, and you add into it with the military voters specifically, like how much downtime are they getting? Because you're asking, if you're asking them to do a whole lot of process to vote, they, that's competing with like their downtime, their recuperation time, that's competing with like time to call, call home, that's competing with their time to sleep, which is something they don't often get. So, so a, a bevy of challenges there that we try to solve for. And then overseas voters can, you know, obviously diverse, right? I, I, I tend to think of the example of like um, someone who's providing healthcare down in an impoverished country or something like that. You know, the likelihood of them having established mail pretty low, are they even going to have Wi-Fi or internet? I don't know if there is a good solution for that voter, but that's ultimately the, the sort of questions that we're, we're trying to answer. And it, and it stretches the policy solutions that we have in place. You brought up overseas civilians and, you know, I've, I've observed elections in a number of other countries and a lot of other countries utilize their embassies to be actual polling places and things. Now, that wouldn't work for the United States because there are so many jurisdictions, so many different ballots. But I am curious, has, has there been any talk maybe with the State Department and utilizing embassies and consulates for overseas citizens to go there and, and maybe print something off or use the diplomatic mail or something like that. I know there were a couple times in 2020, I, I was talking to voters overseas in very challenging situations. You know, out of desperation, I said, is there any way you can get to the embassy or do you know somebody who can take something to the embassy and perhaps they'll put it back through the diplomatic mail? And that actually worked in a couple of instances. So I wonder, the embassies are not always accessible for, right. for people, but I wonder if there's, if that's any part of a solution people have talked about. It is, yeah, and FVAP works with the State Department hand in hand, right? And, and I remember, it, it's just funny you brought that up because during COVID, as we were thinking about the mail shutdowns, diplomatic pouch was something we thought, okay, well, let's get people to the embassy to use that. Um, but even that solution was challenging, as you said, because even in the cities, they were, you know, you think about Italy, like they were quarantined, not, uh, they were not allowed access to other parts of the city. Right. So that wasn't necessarily a reliable solution. And, and as you kind of mentioned, you know, if you're out in the country or out in a rural area or whatever, the chances of you getting to the embassy to make, to, to get your ballot return, probably just unlikely. So yeah, it, it was definitely, it was definitely something that I think was being messaged to the voters. There was also, I think another solution, and I'd, I'd be curious, and I don't know, but I'd be curious to see how it worked out is they were allowing in certain situations, people to drop off their ballots at the, like the gate of military posts, if they had access to that, um, which is something I think we should all keep in our back pockets moving forward on our end. But, you know, even then it, it, in a situation like COVID, that wasn't necessarily reliable either, just the distance it has to be uh, traveled in a, lot of, in a lot of cases. So, so great point. And it, and it was, we spent an awful lot of time talking about and thinking through diplomatic pouch in the last couple of years. It's just one of the bevy of things that I thought I would never learn about in my life. And now I know what an APO, FPO, DPO, you know, the long list of election administration stuff that, you know, who knew? I'm with you. And, and I think it definitely exposed knowledge gap for me as someone who's charged with this knowledge. And, I, and I've constantly reminded that 
I've never actually practiced elections, so I don't fully understand every, every nuance that election practitioners have. And two, just kind of like inexperience. Like I, I had to really kind of relearn how mail gets to, to military voters, right? How we use common carriers and then how it gets to the MPSA and then back from there. And, and, and I think, and I don't want to keep harping on the, the COVID piece, but that was kind of between USPS and MPSA, they had the ability to like, they, they ensured us like, we're going to get this mail to our troops. We're going to get back from them. Right. Right. So they have that built in protection and in, in the, of being within the DOD overseas citizens weren't the beneficiary of that. So that, that those were the ones I think, you know, in hindsight, when you talk about who really needed a contingency solution, those are the ones that we, we worried the most about, I guess. What can we as local election officials, how can we interact with council and state government or OVI in particular? Anybody who wants to kind of know what we're doing, we're, we're at ovi.csg.org, which is our website. You know, the cool thing about working with the Federal Voting Assistance Program is that we have a pretty broad mandate to provide technical assistance. So if there's any election official, regardless of how many UACABA voters you have, if you have questions or you want to consult, you can always call us and we'll, we'll do our best to, to help out and, and provide some guidance. And, and if anything connects you with another election official uh, who might have some ideas, right? I think that's one of the coolest things about CSG and our program is that we we're able to connect policymakers with other policymakers they otherwise might not. You know, something we we also do at the OVI um, is we we collect voter level administrative data in, in our ESB data standard. Essentially, you know, I, I'm, I'm I recognize that EVES is a thing. Just very candidly, I think our goal with uh, our data standard is to potentially uh, replace EVES, and, and kind of here's the why of that. I think EVES is, can do some great high-level work. Our data standard allows us to get down into the transactional level stuff. So, for example, you know, EVES might be able to tell you how many people voted for from a particular country, whereas you know, us actually taking a look at the, the transactional level data, we can tell you, like, hey, based on request method, you know, what was voter success like from that country? So just, just the next step in, in analysis um, that's a that's a voluntary program. We don't we don't make anybody do that, but we, we think it's worth it. One because it just helps uh, FAP and us make some greater policy observations too, because it allows you to kind of compare yourself or the jurisdictions you want to participate compare themselves to other to other jurisdictions, which I think is important. And I, I don't know if you asked this, but I'm going to answer it anyways, like because I get this all the time. What's the most important thing a local election official can do? And I wish I had some like broad like you must enact or X procedure within your office. I don't have that. The best thing. That you can do right now is just really take a hard look at how you communicate with your UACA voters. And I know that's a theme, right? You can say that about all of your voters. Uh, but particularly when you look at how things shook out during the last election, like deadlines changing, you've got people who are hard to communicate with anyways, procedures changing, how you can return your ballot changing. And, and if you didn't know, if you didn't have like a, a, a relationship with your election official, I think it would have been or at least, a, 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 I don't know, some sort of point of contact. It would have been very hard to misunderstand what was needed from you there. And, and I get that it, that it varies, right? Like changing the communication when you've got thousands of uh, UACA voters is a much different lift than someone like, uh, I, I'm a big fan of Sandy Wazilowski in uh, Wisconsin who like had like calls voters and has like personal relationships with them. I think it's easy to kind of look past those folks. Uh, and particularly because if we're being honest, their participation is not always great. So I think we're seeing some, we're going to see some marked improved on, uh, improvement upon that with this last election, um, just like every everything else. 
but yeah, I, I think it goes along with what you said earlier. Every vote counts. It's easy to think this is a small demographic or a small group of people, but it's 3 million voters. And so that's, that's a big deal. And it kind of requires everybody to, everybody to lock in and, and make sure they're taking care of those voters. So however you want to go about it, just make sure that they understand. And this gets along with like NAS trusted info and all that sort of stuff, making sure that they know they, that you are the person for them to talk to and your office is the primary point of contact. I think FF's great too. And they provide some resources that I think are helpful as well. But I think that's, that's the, the first and most important thing. And then all the other policy stuff you can kind of figure out along the way. Thanks everybody for listening to High Turnout Wide Margins. Big thanks to Taylor Lansdale for talking to us about overseas voting. And we hope you enjoy it. We hope you listen next time to High Turnout Wide Margins.